Motherhood is Murder contains graphic and explicit content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Discretion is advised. Well, hello and welcome to episode 12 of Motherhood is Murder. My name is Valerie Cation. As you can tell from my voice, I've been affected. So for the second time since December, I got COVID again. So I've only gotten it twice. This is the second time of me having COVID. However, it's no fun. It wasn't fun the first time around. It's no fun this time around. This time around, however, it's warmer. The sun is out. I've been able to open windows. The rest of my family has fared well, and it seems to be a little more mild, but still affecting my voice. So my apologies, my voice will not be as smooth as it typically is for this this episode, uh, but I will try my best to provide you the information in the best way I know how. So I hope you're all staying healthy and enjoying the warmer weather. Hopefully you're getting sunshine where you are. And again, reiterate, I hope you're healthy. So I am very excited to cover part two of the murders of Jolly Jane Jane Toppin. For those of you who have not listened to part one, it might be a good idea to go back and to listen to that one so that you get the information about Jane's background and what was going on in America and in Boston during this time period. This week, we're going to jump right into the downward spiral of Jane Toppin and the cases that ultimately led to her trial. We will also discuss what it means to be deemed, quote, criminally insane, This is certainly a topic that often comes up during serial killer cases or cases of extreme violence even today. So we'll discuss what the law has to say about really the term is not guilty by reason of insanity or criminally insane, right? When we last left off, what had started as morbid curiosity had had developed into the regular murder of elderly patients and propelled Jane into a killing spree during which time she murdered a landlord and his wife, as well as a close friend of hers. Her next victim would be someone who had been close to her since she was a young girl entering indentured servitude for the Toppins. Elizabeth Toppin Brigham, the daughter of Anne Toppin, Jane's former, quote, master, experienced episodes of depression. Following such an episode during the summer of 1899, Jane invited Elizabeth Toppin Brigham to Buzzards Bay, where she vacationed during the summer. So those of you who are not familiar, Buzzards Bay is in the area of Cape Cod. It's right on the beach really great weather usually, and um, a nice vacation spot. Elizabeth accepted the invitation. Staying on the water and outside of Lowell, Mass, would have provided Elizabeth with a change of scenery and hopefully improve upon her depression. One afternoon, Jane and Elizabeth went out for a picnic of cold canned beef, saltwater taffy, and mineral water. 
Elizabeth was unaware that Jane had laced the water with strychnine. As you may recall, there were some reports in my sources that stated that Jane had a simmering hatred of Elizabeth based on the fact that Elizabeth was the privileged daughter of Anne and that Jane had to serve Elizabeth as they grew up together. I didn't see that in all the sources, however, and it does appear that they kept in contact even when Jane moved out of the top and home. Some sources stated that Elizabeth endured a long, grueling death from poisonings over many days in the Buzzard Bay Cottage. The New England Historical Society reported the death being much quicker and that Jane admitted that she, quote, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. Either way it happened, it appeared as if Jane enjoyed watching Elizabeth Toppin die. So that's the thing about source material. And I think we talked about this briefly last time or a couple times ago that, you know, we have to be really careful with sources because they're not always in line with each other. And I hear this when I listen to other podcasts, kind of like the older the case is, the more unreliable the sources are, it seems. Following Elizabeth's death, Jane insinuated herself into Elizabeth's household to care for Elizabeth's husband, Oromel Brigham, who was mourning his wife's death. Jane killed Brigham's 77-year-old housekeeper, Edna Bannister, and took over Edna's responsibilities, seemingly to impress Oromel. He made it clear to Jane that he did not want Jane as a housekeeper, nor his wife. Jane decided to win his love by poisoning him, then nursing him back to health. Okay, that's one one way to do it, I guess. (laughs) Oramel was not buying it and continued to dismiss her advances. Jane then threatened to claim he had gotten her pregnant. As Jane was in her early 40s, it would have been highly unusual at that time that she would have even been able to get pregnant, never mind with her first child. However, Oramel reacted by ordering her out of his house. Jane then attempted suicide with an overdose of morphine and had to be admitted to the hospital. Following her suicide attempt, Jane went to visit an old friend, Sarah Richards, who had married Jane's brother in Amherst, New Hampshire. This is the first mention I saw that Jane had a brother. So it's interesting. Like we didn't hear anything about Jane's brother until now. And I assume then she must have maintained some kind of contact with him throughout the years, but it's the first time I've heard about. So following her suicide attempt, she went to live with her brother. As Jane's control over potential victims and her world started to crumble, a state detective became suspicious that she was responsible for the deaths of an entire family. In 1901, the detective began to follow Jane to observe her. The family in question was the Alden Davis family, whom Jane had rented a cottage in Bourne, Massachusetts. When Jane had not kept up with paying the Davis family rent, Maddie, the wife, went to Cambridge, where Jane was living, to collect the past due rent. Jane provided her a drink mixed with a cocktail of morphine and atropine, killing Maddie. I'm going to say, if you're going to go, 
and you're going to collect rent from somebody who owes you rent, don't drink the water, man. Do not drink what they give you. And definitely if that person is Jane Toppin, she seemed to really like to administer her poisons through mineral water, right? So like, be really careful. One source stated that Jane reported that Maddie had gotten suddenly ill and died in her care. Jane then went on to move in with the elderly Alden Davis to take care of him in Maddie's absence. So her MO is very much the same. She's like kills off a family member, tries to replace herself or insinuate herself into that role and then take on that role. So, I mean, it's, We've seen this. I've seen people do this kind of stuff in day-to-day, not killing people, but like try to take someone's role away from them, getting them fired or whatever, and then insinuate themselves in that role. So that type of uh, person, obviously a sociopath, but like that type of person's personality is is here now. It wasn't just in the late 1800s. But interesting that she has a very, very like casebook MO. She kind of just does this. While staying with the Davises, Jane murdered Alden Davis, as well as two of his married daughters, Minnie Gibbs and Geraldine Gordon. It was Minnie Gibbs's father-in-law that suspected foul play and contacted the police. A toxicologist got a judge to order Minnie's body exhumed, revealing death by poison. Police arrested Jane Toppin in Amherst, New Hampshire on October 29th, 1901. I could find very little reasoning behind why Jane chose to murder the entire Davis family. In the past, she had murdered for her own pleasure, or like we said, to take a position in a family or a profession. Perhaps that's all it really took for her. It did not appear that there was any contentions with her and the family besides the fact that she had passed due rent. I think she, you know, in looking at some of this is pure speculation, obviously, but I think she sometimes just did it because she could. Like she was there. She's like, I guess I'll just kill this person. I'll just kill this person. It didn't seem like she necessarily had to have like a quote unquote, a beef with somebody. It seemed like sometimes she would just kill people just to kill people. Jane Toppin went to trial the summer of 1902. Jane had previously confessed to her attorney that she had killed at least 31 people and perhaps as many as 100. She claimed she started the murders when her boyfriend dumped her at the age of 16 after giving her a promise ring, but then falling in love with someone else. She claimed that if she had gotten married, she would have had her husband and children to occupy her mind, and thus she would not have turned to murder. I find it interesting that if this is the case, that she didn't put more effort into getting married, right? It doesn't sound like she put that much effort into getting married that I could find. And other than trying to ingratiate herself with Oramel Brigham, I didn't see much in the way of romantic relationships for Jane. And it seemed too that like, if she was getting sexual satisfaction from murder, she was getting that part of her life taken care of by killing people. So I don't know, maybe she's just think this is what you're supposed to say. Like, oh, if I had been a wife and mother, if that had worked out for me, I wouldn't have killed people. 
I'm just kind of happy she wasn't a wife and mother. Let's just leave it at that. Jane's eight-hour trial was held in the Barnstable County Courthouse. The jury deliberated for 27 minutes and found Jane not guilty by reason of insanity. So I'm unsure if an insanity defense was used or if at the time the jury could offer insanity as part of their decision on a case. We'll go into that a little bit more in a moment as how it is in the modern day, but I'm not quite sure what it was back then. Jane Toppin would spend the rest of her life in Taunton State Hospital after a life of indentured servitude, killing dozens of elderly while nursing, staging sicknesses to bring the death back to life, killing older family members and stealing their jobs and positions in life, and getting into bed with patients to derive sexual pleasure from their deaths. Jane Toppin herself died on August 17th. 1938. She was was reported to have said in the Taunton State Hospital, quote, get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out into the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. First of all, epic quote. It's so creepy. So, so creepy. And this is a quote from somebody who actually said this. It feels like a movie. Like when I first read that quote, I was like, I could see that as like a headliner of a movie or see it like in a trailer, like her saying this, this would make a terrific, terrific movie, her story and her life. Anyway, I don't know that it's been done. It could have been, I don't know that it's been done. But um, that's her legacy. I wanted you to see and hear that legacy. Like that's what she left behind. People that she had killed for the most part. That's her legacy. Just seems so strange to me that that's what someone would leave behind. When reading about this case and the murders, I was relatively shocked to see that Jane Toppin was considered not guilty by reason of insanity. I could not find much information about the laws of insanity at that time, so I thought it would be interesting to look at what constitutes criminally insane today. The Social Security Administration defines not guilty by reason of insanity to mean, quote, a plea by a criminal defendant who admits the criminal act, but claims they were mentally disturbed at the time of the crime and lack the mental capacity to have intended to commit a crime. So I'm not really sure that Jane Toppin would be considered not guilty by reason of insanity based on this current definition. After all, although she admitted her crimes, she also stated to police and to her attorney that she enjoyed the crimes and got sexual satisfaction from the crimes, which could provide a reason for intent to commit in order to gain sexual satisfaction. So I think that could be very well argued in court um, because of her confession. I think it would be really hard today. And I don't know what the qualifications were at that time. It could be just based on the fact that there hadn't been many, um, there or there hadn't been much 
research into what a serial killer actually was back then. That could be why anyone who did this would be like, that person's got to be insane kind of thing. And we've been able to do more research and get a better in gathering of information on what insanity actually is. So that's what I'm thinking. Uh, one of the things that stands out for me is this only took eight hours. The trial itself was eight hours. And there's that many people. I think she was just being tried for the family, maybe. I don't know if she was also tried for Elizabeth, but that's like still like how many? It was like four or five family members. It was only eight hours and then 27 minutes of deliberation. That's kind of just like getting, sitting down and going, yeah, let's guilt, not guilty by reason of sanity. Sounds right. Sounds right to me. Put her in uh Totten state, you know, interesting. I also discovered that currently there are four types of insane defense. So I want to go through those because I didn't know that. I thought this was fascinating. The four, and one of them, I'm not sure if I'm going to be pronouncing it correctly. So if you're out there and you've been studying this or you're an attorney and know this well, I really apologize. I'm probably going to batch this up, but this is my first go around with this. So the four types are monogton. I'm going to say monogton. I don't know if I'm right with that one. Irresistible impulse, substantial capacity, and Durham. Those who are considered under these types can be deemed insane and acquitted, guilty but mentally ill, meaning they're eligible for mental health treatment in prison, diminished capacity and syndrome, which could acquit or reduce severity of offense if the defendant cannot form criminal intent required for the crime, or mentally incompetent to stand trial, which could delay trial until competence is regained. So to kind of break that down is of these four types, all these things will need to be considered as part of these four types. So it's not like you just have the types, you have like considerations underneath each the types and all those considerations are the same, but I want us to go over the types a little bit more so you can get an idea. Cause I think sometimes I know for myself, I was just thinking it's just one thing, but it's really is broken down into a number of different things. So yeah, let's go into discuss the four types. The McNaughton type is when a defendant must be suffering from mental affect or disease at the time of a crime and did not know the nature or quality of the criminal act committed or that the act was committed because of a mental defect. Now, I can't say that Jane Toppin would have been considered for this type. She Clearly, she had admitted to what she did and she knew what she was doing. All right. So, I was just going to say that they're suffering from so much disease. They don't even know what's going on. They don't know that they've committed a crime. They don't know what they did was a crime. Like there's a lot of uh, diminished, diminished capacity there, right? The second type is irresistible impulse, which is when someone must be suffering from a mental affect or disease at the time of the crime and could not control his or her criminal conduct because of the defect or disease. So it's possible Jane could have been considered under this type if she had a specific mental illness. So I think at the time what she was doing wasn't classified under a specific mental illness quite yet. Um, and of course the DSM was not published until 1952. So that's some, 
some 20 years following her death. So I'm not sure how that would have even been considered in the early 1900s. In fact, I don't think it would have because it, there wasn't that possibility yet. But, um, you know, you have to have in order to get any of these types, you have to have an actual mental illness or defect first. The third type is substantial capacity. So this is going to soften the two, the second element of those two types. One must, under this, one must lack substantial but not total capacity to appreciate the criminality of conduct or to control or conform conduct to the law. So under this, you, you don't have to have lost all your senses. Just substantial loss of understanding of what you did was a crime. So those other two is like, you're not even going to know what you did was a crime. This one is like, you may know that what you did was a crime, but you still weren't able to stop yourself or control yourself based on your mental illness. So you're really like, you're lacking like substantial capacity, not full capacity, but substantial capacity. And again, I don't think that Jane Toppin uh, didn't know that murder was a crime. Um, in fact, as a nurse, she would have taken an oath not to harm someone. So I think she knew what she was doing was against the law, but did it anyway to serve her own means. I don't think that was a consideration for her. The last type, the Durham type, excuses criminal conduct when caused by mental illness or defect. So it is really broad. That's all it is. It excuses criminal content when caused by mental illness or defect. So in any of these, these types, the defense needs to produce evidence and the prosecution's burden of proof is to dispute, disprove insanity. And we've seen this. So at this time, it appears that it's easier to disprove versus prove sanity when it comes to the court of laws. Many cases have been have used this defense and have not been honored their position. So we saw this in my coverage of uh, Colleen Ritzer's murder, Philip Chisholm, uh, John Odgren, Nathaniel Vegeta. So go back to those first few episodes, like episodes, I think it's like one through three, actually. Uh, they all produced a mental health defense. Um, they all stated that their the defense attorneys were trying to prove that their defendant was mentally ill at the time of the crime and could not control themselves as a result of that. And the prosecution dispute disproved that with evidence surrounding the case. So that was a big piece of all of those cases. And in all of those cases, all three of those individuals were charged with first degree murder. So they were not, um, it, that was not honored, the mental health defense. There were reports that Jane Toppin was put in a straitjacket and kept in solitary confinement during her stay at Taunton State Hospital. I decided to briefly look into what was uh, called, quote, asylums and what they looked like at that time in the 1900s. I'm going to cover this topic more extensively in another month when we dive a little deeper into it, because there's a lot to cover right here in Massachusetts, right? There were a lot of things happening in asylums and quote, mental institutions in Massachusetts and New England. So I really want to cover that in an entirely different month. I was even thinking maybe the month of October. So it was super spooky, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so there were reports of horrific treatment in asylums, including hair pulling, solitary confinement, treating patients like prisoners, 
fire hazards and intentionally infecting people with malaria to test treatments for syphilis. Patients were also said to be spun on wheels. I think it's to get their head set straight, which is so strange, placed in a harness and swung. So again, I think this idea of like moving the body physically, like swinging someone around to set their brain or their head straight, some were branded with hot iron and as late as the 1930s subjected to electric shock treatment and lobotomy. It was quite possible that Jane Toppin was also subjected to some of these treatments while in the asylum. Totten State Hospital remains open to this day, housing 48 psychiatric beds, a women's recovery from addiction program, a residential program for Department of Youth Services, and a substance abuse program. So as you can tell, we've come a long way, baby, right? We've come a long way from that to helping people get better, provide them with services that they need to get better. Another notable patient that stayed at the Taunton State Hospital was serial killer Anthony Santo. Santo killed two of his cousins and one other girl in a three-month spree claiming to have, quote, mad spells and undergoing hallucinations. So this might be an interesting case to cover at some point as well. Um, it's an interesting one. But yeah, so Taunton State Hospital has housed two serial killers uh, in its time. So these last two weeks have been quite a roller coaster in my personal life, as well as here on the podcast covering Jane Toppin, quite something else. There is a lot more information about Jane Toppin out there. Many podcasts who have covered the case. So please do more research if you're interested. Next week is our monthly wrap up. We'll discuss what is called the out of character myth. Oftentimes when we consider those who have presented an oath to help heal people, it would indeed seem out of character when they go on to murder someone. We'll also take a look at the type of person who goes into the medical field and the myth that might surround them. So it, it's going to be really cool and interesting to talk about this out of character myth, because I think a lot of times we run into people and we're like, they'll do something like that's out of character. That doesn't seem like him, but like, let's talk about this as a myth. Let's talk about this in consideration of the medical field and like what kind of person goes into the medical world and are there myths surrounding that as well? Be really cool and interesting to check out. So have a great week. Above all, stay healthy. Until next week, be good to one another. Do you love the show? Support Motherhood is Murder on Patreon and get some awesome perks, including a shout out on the show bonus content, access to a private online community, and more. We appreciate the support so much, and it allows me to offer a case to you each and every week. Other ways to the support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate all the fabulous feedback, and it ensures people will listen and help families who need it most. Motherhood is Murder is researched, written, and produced by me, Valerie Cation. Music by Alexi Action. Check out the show notes for a list of my sources and ways to support your community. Music.